I hope you enjoyed this week's all-new episode of Star Trek Discovery, available on CBS All Access. So, I've rounded up some of our fantastic guests to give us their reactions to this week's incredible episode. And here is what they had to say. Hey, this is Jeff Bond. I'm editor of Geek Magazine, and I'm here to talk about the Star Trek Discovery episode, Such Sweet Sorrow. This episode certainly takes its title at its word. There's kind of a grand tradition of serialized TV shows building up their to their tremendous finales by spinning their wheels in the penultimate episode. And it always seems like a big bait and switch because just as with this episode, the preview teaser the week before makes it look like something completely different than what it turns out to be. In this case, last week's teaser made it look like this episode was going to be all about the Discovery and the Enterprise fighting an all-out battle against Leland's Section 31 fleet. But actually, parting is such sweet sorrow that we need to spend about 30 minutes of this 48-minute episode with people tearfully saying goodbye and resolving all their personal stuff. Some of this material is well-earned, some of it is well-written, and most of it is well-acted, but after 20 minutes or so, I at least was sated and more than ready to move on. I hate to admit it, but the emotional high point of this episode for me was watching Pike grab onto the classic turbolift control from the original Star Trek on his way to the bridge of the Enterprise. We got a sneak peek at the updated Enterprise bridge on the teaser last week, and it does not disappoint. Although most nitpickers, all, all most nitpickers saw was too many lights. But I was actually shocked at all the throwbacks and TOS detail on the new bridge, from the orange guardrails to Spock's science station and all the jelly bean buttons. I had heard early in the season that any Enterprise bridge would be a simple repaint of the Discovery of Shinzu bridge, so I was impressed how far they went with this, and with a, a very nice cage-style briefing room, too. Otherwise, bringing in the Space Queen from my least favorite short trek seemed to sell the Discovery crew itself short by admitting that not even Spock was smart enough to figure out how to hook up those time crystals and make them work. Time crystals are a very lost-in-space idea, although I did love how they were used to make Pike's ultimate Star Trek fate a choice in the previous episode. And in this episode, I did like the scene with Burnham, Sarek, and Amanda, even if it made no sense for her adoptive parents to be on the ship. I just wish any of these big emotional scenes had been given more room to breathe instead of cramming them all into a half hour of nonstop hugging and crying. Discovery has a lot of loose ends to tie up now in its final hour, and I'm looking forward to see how or if it manages to pull all that off. So you remember that part in The Phantom Menace where the astrometric droids, including R2-D2, pop up and roll around on top of whatever Amidala's shiny ship is called and go repair stuff while they're being attacked by the Trade Federation's embargo fleet? Yeah, this episode made me flash back to that. Thanks, Discovery. This is J.D. Voigt with the final episode-specific moment of this season of Disco Science. I'm going to start with something that actually has a real-world analog, that fancy 3D printer that they use to build components of the time suit because it basically looked like it ran on lasers. And there actually are laser 3D printers out there right now. There's even more than one type. The oldest use a method called stereolithography. Basically, you have this vat of liquid resin, a special plastic that, when it's exposed to light of the right wavelength, it hardens. So you start with a platform down in this vat and use an ultraviolet laser to trace out the shape of a single horizontal layer, move your platform a little bit up or down, depending on your setup, then trace the next level's shape with your laser, move the platform, so on and so forth. 
You also have to use other lasers after the fact to help the whole shape get more solid and help the layers fuse together. Alas, there were no vats present in this episode, so that's probably not what we're dealing with. The other main type of laser 3D printer is called Selective Laser Sintering, or SLS. Instead of a liquid resin, it uses a fine powder that a CO2-powered laser fuses together. So here, your machine deposits a thin layer of powder onto a platform, the laser draws out the shape of a single layer, another layer of powder is dropped, etc. The powder that doesn't get sintered serves as structural support while you're printing. So unlike 3D printing that you might be familiar with, you don't have to cut off all of those random lines of plastic before your weird shape is all pretty. You just brush the stuff off. Although in this case, you have to wait several hours for the whole thing to cool down and then you can touch it. Didn't see that happen either. But hey, they've got a couple of centuries on us. But while we're waiting on that, there are some pretty cool things that we're 3D printing now. Like chocolate sculptures. Or space rocket engines or scaffolds for replacement organs. In fact, in 2017, a mouse at Northwestern University gave birth to a healthy litter of pups after growing them from conception thanks to 3D printed ovaries. Science is kinda cool sometimes. Now I'm going to call Discovery out for referencing yet another movie, Inception. Obviously in Dreamland, the rules of gravity don't apply. I know this from personal experience. But if you're going to replicate that famous hallway fight in your space-based science action movie or show, I'm going to start thinking about whether or not you're playing by your artificial gravity's rules. So I have to back up a moment and tell you that for my master's dissertation, I spent three weeks watching 90 different space-related movies released between 1968 and 2015. And part of that included quantifying how these films and the different genres they were in chose to represent gravity on board spaceships. Perhaps unsurprisingly, a majority of those films, 63%, went the route of classic science fiction and just had characters walk around on their ships with little to no explanation for how they were allowed to do so. Only six actually had to deal with the artificial gravity being deactivated for one reason or another. And yes, Star Trek VI was one of those. Meanwhile, 11 of those 90 films featured artificial gravity being generated within a large rotating ring. While 2001 A Space Odyssey is perhaps the most classic example of this, most of these films were actually released in the 21st century, and also they're more likely to be found in movies that IMDb classifies as thrillers or dramas, not action-adventures. As far as artificial gravity goes, this is a way more realistic method of generation. Although none of the movies put a ton of effort into calculating exactly how big their ring needed to be or how fast it needed to rotate in order to generate the acceleration equivalent to Earth's surface. There are also some weird negative health effects that can come about if your ring's too small, because your head and your feet experience different enough effects being however many feet apart from one another. Those movies obviously don't deal with that either. But big spinning things do sure look cool. There was one movie about space vampires, coincidentally featuring Patrick Stewart, that used artificial gravity like they have in the Expanse television series, using rockets on the back of the ship to push the floors up into people. It's a lot less elaborated upon than it is in the Expanse, but I was surprised for the novelty in what was rather a terrible movie. Had any Star Trek ships used tech like this, we couldn't get this disco fight scene. Gravity just would either get stronger or weaker if your ring was rotating faster or slower or even switched to rotating in the opposite direction. 
if you had one of the non-rotating ships, you could flip the ship over and have the opposite rockets fire and fling everyone into the ceiling, but not the walls. Anyway, there were 10 films that actually dared to not have any artificial gravity. When characters were in their spaceship, they were weightless. But basically all of those took place at a time contemporary to when the film was released. James Cameron's Avatar was the only real exception, and they were only on that ship for a few minutes at the start of the movie. Interestingly, a good chunk of those movies didn't require CG. It was all practical. They had really tight shots on the actors, or had them bob around, or stand on beams that they kept out of frame. And then there's Apollo 13, where they actually filmed up in the Vomit Comet. 25 seconds of apparent weightlessness at a time, baby. But back to Disco. Aside from using mag boots when the gravity's turned off, there's really no canonical explanation for how the Federation's artificial gravity works. But I'm struggling to find an explanation for why the ship would ever have a reason to attract people or objects toward any wall that isn't what is clearly meant to be the floor. Like, I get it, it looks cool, and sometimes you gotta sacrifice some of that scientific plausibility for story. But was it at least internally consistent with what's been established before? I don't know. And finally, I shall end with the end. The revelation of the seventh thread signal located somewhere in the beta quadrant, 51,000 light years from the Enterprise. For reference, the distance from Earth to the center of the Milky Way is about half that. And when Voyager was thrown into the delta quadrant, they were 70,000 light years from Earth. So, If a 23rd century ship has the capability of detecting signals 51,000 light years away, a 24th century ship would only need to travel at most 20,000 light years before a signal could be detected, which the Enterprise did over the span of Star Trek V. Guys. Guys. I think I found a plot hole. So while I wait to see what Discovery Season 3 has in store, Go ahead and tweet me your Star Trek science questions at JD Voik. That's J-D-V-O-Y-E-K. Live long and prosper, everyone. Until next time. Hey, this is Jeff Bond. I'm editor of Geek Magazine, and I'm here to talk about Star Trek Discovery episode Such Sweet Sorrow, Part 2. Uh, if you felt frustrated thinking you were going to get a big space battle in Such Sweet Sorrow Part 1, Part 2 definitely has your back. It is pretty much all space battle, followed by one long goodbye. And it is very much has the handwriting of uh, Alex Kurtzman, Discovery showrunner, as well as one of the writer-producers behind the J.J. Abrams movies on it. Other than the last five minutes, I'm kind of at a loss to explain what happened in it, apart from tons and tons of impressive special effects. I I think I missed something a couple of episodes back, because my initial understanding was that the Discovery crew had transferred to the Enterprise so they could destroy the Discovery, but Control had taken control of the Discovery and wouldn't allow it to be destroyed. But it would allow the crew to transfer back to the ship and spend the next few hours preparing it to travel 900 years into the future? This episode, or this season, really boils down to two things. Kurtzman and his staff very much listened to fan complaints about Season 1 and seemed to spend the bulk of Season 2 explaining how Discovery fits into canon, which is like Star Trek religion now. One part of that worked great. Putting Anson Mount on the show as Christopher Pike enriched the history and drama of that character and truly made him one of the great Starship captains, probably my third favorite in terms of his performance and charisma. 
The other accomplishment was creating a believable relationship between Burnham and Spock. It's ultimately unnecessary. We don't really need Burnham to tell a woebegone Spock that he should seek out a buddy or maybe two buddies in the future who will be the yin to his yang. But it's not inconceivable that Spock had another facet to his past and an important one that he kept hidden. He tended to hide things. Probably the biggest problem here is that all this story came at the expense of Discovery really shaping its own premise. It's true that we have focused on the journey of a first officer in the form of Burnham, but a lot of her journey has been more about the history of Star Trek than about her development as a character. Discovery has been a show somewhat at war with its own premise. That's a problem that Voyager had, and you have to give credit to Discovery showrunners for at least addressing the problem. But that really means starting over now, 900 years in the future, without Sarek or Amanda or Pike or Lorca or Prime Universe Lorca or even Tyler and the Klingons. It pretty much means a new show, so let's hope the people behind Discovery really have something up their sleeve. They have the cast and the crew to do it. They just need a story. Hey, this is Lisa Klink with my thoughts on the second season finale of Star Trek Discovery. In general, I liked it. I found the action was really good and interesting. I wanted even more action and even more urgency. I did not have much patience for scenes of goodbye, uh, like Burnham and Spock sitting on wherever they were sitting and having that long conversation. I just wanted them to get on with it and to leave leave some things unsaid the way it happens in, in real life, especially in urgent situations. I also did not buy that Pike would let Cornwall sacrifice herself to save the ship and let herself get blown up. I think that he really would have taken that responsibility on himself. Again, especially since we kind of got a glimpse of a really unhappy future for him, I would think that this might be his way of avoiding that or looking to change the future by you know not being part of it, or like he actually said, that the thing wouldn't blow up if it was him there because that wasn't his destiny. So I did not buy him letting her blow herself up at all. Uh, I really did like the reveal of the Klingon ship. I did not see that coming, and I was surprised and impressed by this enormous ship showing up in the middle of battle. That, I gotta say, was pretty cool. And overall, I would say that the second season finale accomplished what a season finale needs to do, which is it made me really interested to watch next season. So I will be. All right. Well, thank you so much, J.D. Voyek, Jeff, Alexandra, and Lisa. Really always a pleasure to have you and your voices here on the show. And thanks to you guys. Thank you, our audience, for joining us for Disco Nights. And uh, if you're a fan of this podcast, you may want to check out Electric Surge's other podcasts, including 430 Movie every Friday and Inglorious Trexperts, the podcast about all things Trek with co-hosts Mark Altman and Darren Docterman. It's available every Saturday evening at 17.01 hours. That's not 17.02, by the way, 17.01, wherever you listen to podcasts. A very special thanks to Bill Ritter, our engineer, and everybody here at Electric Surge. And uh, we really appreciate you making the show possible. Join us next Sunday and every Sunday for an all-new disco party to make sure you bring your disco shoes. This is Chase Masterson saying disco lives, and I'll see you next week.
This podcast is a production of the Electric Surge Network.